Welcome back to the Pottery Series on Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. Thanks so much for tuning in today, um, because today we're going to continue to analyze the stages of pottery production. So last episode, you'll recall that we focused on primary forming techniques that are used to create the initial vessel form or shape. So you'll recall that we talked about coiling, pinching, drawing, slab, molding, and throwing. And we correlated those techniques to the archaeological record and talked a bit about how primary forming techniques uh, can actually be inferred uh, by looking at ancient archaeological shards of pottery. So, for example, uh, sometimes we can see where coils or slabs were loosely bonded or where two halves of a mold met. Uh, we may actually be able to feel indentations created by a potter's fingers and fingertips where they actually pinched or drew the clay. Or we may be able to visually inspect pottery for rilling, uh, which is, of course, diagnostic of thrown wares. Um, now, today's episode will spotlight what we call secondary forming techniques. And these are defined as techniques that may alter or refine the vessel's shape and surface. Now, as a potter and anthropologist Owen Rye tells us, quote, to the potter, form is not clearly separable from decoration. Each influences the other, end quote. So, you know, uh, there can be some real overlap between secondary forming techniques, surface treatment, decoration, and finishing techniques. So what we're going to do is treat all of these topics together in today's episode. And just as we did with primary forming techniques, we'll also be highlighting some clues that help archaeologists infer the nature of secondary forming techniques as well as surface treatment, decoration, and finishings. So let's begin. Beating and scraping are two secondary forming techniques that I'd like to highlight for you. These are used to refine the vessel shape um, and may actually alter the dimension of the uh, overall vessel. So potters may beat or paddle a pre-leather hard vessel with a stick or stone uh, to improve bonding and uh, compact the paste, to remove coil marks, to smooth the surface of irregularities, uh, but also to thin vessel walls. Um, this is accomplished by repeatedly striking the form with or without using a support on the opposite side of the vessel wall. So the act of beating and paddling uh, will actually leave these little casts on the vessel's surface uh, that appear as these faint little facets where the tool was used, of course. Um, beating, however, does create uh, some stress on the vessel um, and sometimes to the degree that even small lens-shaped fragments uh, pop off, um, or these little star-shaped cracks may form uh, either during or after 
the firing stage. Scraping is another secondary forming technique, um, and it actually may be among uh, the most time-intensive segments of the pottery production sequence because scraping may need to occur many times over to achieve a desired wall thinness or to smooth the surface of uh, irregularities. Scraping, uh, as with beading and paddling, must occur before a vessel becomes leather hard. Uh, pieces of cane, uh, like river cane, uh, bamboo, gourd, shell, bone, uh, metal, plastic, um, and even uh, pottery sherds themselves make for excellent scraping tools. Um, these tools, however, may actually drag grit over the surface, uh, but it creates a diagnostic clue for us that we can read. Uh, scrapers may also leave a small ridge of excess clay where the potter stopped scraping. Now, uh, the next stage would be surface finishing. This follows those secondary forming techniques I just laid out. Um, and this is a stage where a potter will focus on smoothing and texturing really uh, the entire surface, perhaps. Uh, smoothing creates this all over kind of matted uh, surface. So by matted, I mean more or less like matte, like the opposite of something that's lustrous, a matte uh, finish. But it creates a surface that's finer uh, than what can be achieved by beating, paddling, or scraping alone. Smoothing occurs before a pot has completely dried, um, or if it seems a little too dry, a potter may actually re-wet the dry surface uh, to prepare for this smoothing stage. Now, a vessel may be smoothed uh, with a piece of cloth, a, a piece of leather, even a bundle of grass, or the potter's own hand. Um, sticks and wooden spools have actually been documented uh, as smoothing implements uh, used by potters uh, working in the highlands of Guatemala. Smoothing does leave diagnostic clues uh, on pottery that we can read. Uh, grass bundles, uh, for example, that are used for smoothing, uh, leave these faint, thin, linear kinds of impressions. And I, I also just want to mention, as we're talking about the archaeological uh, uh, corollaries, if you will, of each technique, you're going to see images of these uh, in rice as well as our rye reading. So feel free to flip uh, back to those as I'm walking you through some of the important information, okay, if you need a visual. Um, but anyway, a wet hand uh, can also be used here, uh, which may impart sort of these shallow parallel striations uh, that have rounded tips that bear resemblance uh, to the potter's fingers. Burnishing is another type of smoothing uh, that compacts and reorients clay particles to create a semi-lustrous finish. So it's not going to be quite like a matte finish. It's going to be a little bit more polished or lustrous. Um, and this is achieved by rubbing a pebble or bone 
uh, horn or even uh, large seeds would work. Um, these uh, One of these items would be rubbed back and forth over the surface um, while it is leather hard or even dry. Um, dry surfaces may actually be preferred for burnishing because they're better suited to retain this luster. Um, the tool used for burnishing uh, may actually leave these narrow parallel grooves or channels on the surface. Now texturing is a finishing technique that's viewed as an alternative to smoothing. Um, and it encompasses roughening the surface, pattern striations, combing, stamping, impressing, and roulettering. So a potter may choose to uh, texture an entire vessel or perhaps just a segment of it. Now the surface of what we call utilitarian vessels, uh, like those used in cooking or for storing food, for example, may be intentionally roughened so that the vessel is actually easier to grip by the user. Um, it's also been suggested that roughening uh, surface improves the vessel's resistance to something that we call thermal shock. Now we're going to be talking more about thermal shock in another episode, um, but basically this refers to stress that occurs in a vessel as a result of uh, sudden temperature changes uh, that happen, for example, when someone uses a pot for cooking. Striating and combing are uh, other finishing techniques uh, that achieve a certain kind of texture. So here, a potter may drag or comb a serrated or denticulate, meaning a toothed edge, uh, or shell or stone across the surface. Um, and this leaves a diagnostic type of very shallow scoring. Stamping and pressing and rouletting are terms that really have been kind of used interchangeably by archaeologists because it can be a little difficult to distinguish between these, uh, these techniques on archaeological pottery. Impressing is achieved by rubbing or pressing material, so shell, uh, fish spines even, textiles, corn cobs, nets, baskets, or mats, onto a pre-leather hard surface. Stamps are usually pressed uh, onto a, a pre-leather hard surface. Um, and we think stamp designs uh, may have actually been carved into clay, stone, uh, or wooden paddles or cylinders that would have been pressed or uh, struck against the surface of the vessel. Stamped and impressed pottery uh, is actually really commonly encountered on the east coast of the United States, uh, where I've carried out uh, the majority of my archaeological fieldwork. Um, so uh, Pamunkey potters of Virginia are still practicing their craft of traditional pottery. But they do appropriate some modern tools into their stamp and impression kits. Now, according to uh, Theodore Stern's book, Pamunkey Pottery Making, uh, which was published in 1951, Pamunkey potters use, quote, thimbles, railroad seals, 
watch chains, buttons, the denticulated edge of fossil shark's teeth, the fluted surface of a muskrat's tooth, the end of a key, a string of beads, and glass pieces with flower designs cut on them, end quote. Now, um, in comparison to stamping and impressing, rouletting leaves a continuous impressed design over the surface by rolling a carved cylinder or wooden implement. Experimenting and recording the different impressions, uh, you know, left by some of these materials on experimentally produced pottery, um, I think would actually make a really kind of excellent research paper topic. Uh, so I mentioned this for anybody who is still looking for a topic or wanting to perhaps uh, narrow down uh, their focus from a broad topic. Now, after a surface is finished, um, a potter may proceed with what are called surface enhancements. Surface enhancements are generally more um, decorative in nature. However, uh, as Prudence Rice points out in our learning materials, quote, certain surface treatments, such as the all over impressed or textured treatments, or glazes and slips are ambiguous. Are they part of finishing or are they decorative?" End quote. So Rice brings up a really interesting point, really that there is some slippage or confusion between surface treatment and surface enhancement. But know going forward that enhancement does carry much more of a decorative connotation. Uh, decoration enhances the appearance or attractiveness of a vessel, but really is not like a required stage of forming uh, the vessel shape. Um, so you'll recall, I think, how we talked a bit about impressing as a texturing technique uh, used during uh, finishing. Decorative impressing is a little bit different um, because it's characterized as an embellishment, right? By pressing, I'm sorry, by impressing, stamping, or rocker stamping, meaning literally rocking a stamp back and forth, um, on only a segment of a vessel. So the rim, the neck, the shoulder, rather the entire surface area. Punctation uh, is typically reserved for enhancement purposes only. Um, it's decorative. A stick, a hollow reed, an awl, uh, it's spelled A-W-L by the way, which is a traditional tool used in leather working to pierce leather. Um, a finger, a fingernail even, um, all of these uh, tools may be used to poke depressions into a uh, clay that is still wet. Rice does caution, though, that it might be difficult for us to determine the tool used to make the punctation due to wear on the surface or due to the fact that the surfaces have been roughened. But Rice offers a possible remedy here. Quote, motifs can be discerned more clearly by covering the area with plasticine and studying the positive cast, end quote. 
And again here, you, you know, I think you might actually find some inspiration for an experimental project that could involve documenting and comparing the marks left uh, by uh, punctating instruments on pottery that maybe you experimentally reproduce. Cutting is another type of surface enhancement um, where a tool is drawn through the surface uh, or a clay body, uh, usually when the vessel is either pre-leather hard or leather hard. Um, but some vessels may, uh, may be cut even after firing. I'm going to link you to a video demonstration by Don Carpentier, uh, who was a self-taught master craftsman uh, in like many different trades, uh, but perhaps he is uh, well known to archaeologists for his uh, excellent potting techniques. Um, and he's actually, uh, he's actually uh, cited as an example of doing a really nice job of reproducing 18th and 19th century engine turned pottery. So I'm going to link you to a video on this. And as you watch Carpen uh, Carpentier's video, See if you can sort of center the eye on his workshop, the techniques that he uses, and the tools he uses uh, for cutting uh, engine-turned mokoware pottery. Now, there are several types of cutting techniques. One is called incising. Um, here is when a line is cut with a sharp point through the surface of a vessel. These lines um, may be very fine, um, or they can be kind of wide and appear almost as grooves in a vessel. A potter may cut a stationary vessel uh, using a hand tool, or they may rotate the vessel on a wheel or a lathe as they press a cutting tool against the surface, uh, which creates the effect of like these continuous uninterrupted lines. And I think you'll see this in the Carpentier uh, video. A clean line with a raised margin is produced when a potter incises wet or leather uh, or a wet or a leather hard surface. Carving is another uh, cutting technique that involves removing multiple pieces of clay from the vessel to create a, a design that's three-dimensional uh, in nature. Carving is done usually during the leather hard stage. Um, there's a carving technique called excising, which uh, refers to cutting out clay in the background to achieve a design that stands out in low relief. And chamfering is another carving technique. Um, and this involves slicing panels from the vessel wall. The last cutting technique that I'd like to highlight here for you is perforating and piercing. And here is where a tool is used to cut through the entire vessel wall while the vessel is still plastic or more commonly leather hard, right? So we get the sense that a lot of the decoration is applied during the very critical leather hard stage. So um, th uh, these techniques that we're talking about uh, piercing and perforating can actually achieve like this all over beautiful lace-like pattern that uh, does render vessels perhaps more decorative, I guess, uh, than utilitarian or functional. Here's an example. 
Um, so potters of Coyo, Tepic, Mexico uh, are known to create these really beautiful, lustrous blackware lampshades and dried flower containers um, that are just exquisitely perforated all over. This is such a beautiful uh, pottery tradition um, that someone may actually want to investigate uh, in a research paper. Another type of uh, surface enhancement is called the applique. Appliques are uh, like these little pieces of shaped or moldy clay that are joined to the vessel's surface. So the appliques uh, may be joined with something called luting. That's L-U-T-I-N-G. Uh, luting is basically a slip. Um, it's when a slip is used to bond the applique to the surface of the pot. Sometimes appliques will actually stick very nicely uh, to surfaces without loot um, if both materials, meaning the applique and the vessel, are still a bit moist. The surface uh, may also be scored before receiving the applique, um, and this is to further promote uh, bonding. Um, and the size of the appliques um, can be quite large, or they can be very tiny. Um, but they usually take the form of uh, fillets, uh, spikes, pellets, uh, flowers, and even anthropomorphic elements like faces. It's also not uncommon for potters to add applique appendages to vessels. Uh, so things like uh, handles or spouts, for example. Um, 19th century uh, wheel-thrown stoneware uh, face jugs, as they're called, uh, made by enslaved and free black potters in Edgefield, South Carolina, demonstrate the use of applique and sculpting to form the characteristic face that appears on these vessels. It's uh, widely speculated that these uh, vessels carried a kind of ritualistic connotation um, and may have perhaps uh, been used for traditional conjuring purposes. Dave the Potter, as he's called, uh, is perhaps the most well-known of all the Edgefield Potters. He marked his wares with little poems and little sayings. So this may be another fascinating topic that you could refine into a research paper. So here the focus might actually be on the individual potter or the works that uh, Dave produced. Color is another decorative addition to pottery. A pigment uh, we define as a coloring agent that is suspended in a medium uh, like fat, oil, juice, or even urine. Um, and it acts as a binder to promote adhesion. Nicoya potters of Costa Rica use sour orange juice as a medium to suspend pigment in uh, and to uh, increase adhesion. A dye, on the other hand, is defined as a soluble organic substance that imparts 
color. Um, indigo is a great example of a dye. But pigments and dyes uh, may be applied uh, to just a segment of a vessel or perhaps the entire thing. Um, pigments can be applied uh, before or after firing, but dyes are usually applied after firing or else they'll just burn off uh, when the vessel is being fired. Iron, manganese, and carbon are really the only pigments uh, that may be able to survive firing. Um, carbon rendered from charcoal or plant extracts may be applied after firing, uh, which is going to impart a blackish color, uh, which is seen among papago potters in Arizona. Uh, these papago potters actually boil a mixture of mesquite bark and resin into a pigment. And minerals uh, such as cinnabar and hematite um, appear to have been rubbed into incisions post-firing, as seen in examples from Mesoamerica. Now paint involves applying colorant with a brush made of hair, fur, plant fiber, feather or similar material um, and usually when the vessel is dry uh, but before firing. Um, paint may be applied uh, post-fire as well um, especially if the colorant is unstable and uh, is expected not to survive the firing process. Painted decoration is called bichrome when only two colors are present. When three or more colors are present we call this polychrome meaning more than, more than one or two colors. Some potters, like those of the American Southwest, um, actually create pigments with galena, um, known as uh, glazed paints, because they vitrify into a glassy, almost glaze-like material. Another technique used to paint pottery is called resist, um, which is achieved when a temporary protective uh, coating of wax or grease is applied only to select portions of a surface before firing. And during firing, this coating that was applied burns right off and reveals either a positive or negative design depending on how the potter applied the resist. Another type of surface enhancement is slip. Um, slip is a fluid suspension of clay that uh, usually has this almost slurry type of viscosity. Um, several coats of slip uh, may be applied to a completely dried vessel uh, surface prior to firing or perhaps just a single coat. Slips are usually colors that contrast with the vessel's uh, body color. So vessels may be dipped into a slip for uniform coverage. Alternatively, the slip may be poured directly onto the vessel. But in this instance, the potter must very quickly rotate the vessel as the slip is applied to ensure even coverage. In other cases, a potter may use cloth, fur, or their own hand to wipe slip onto the surface. Um, and this technique also gives pretty even coverage. Now, the term wash uh, may be used here uh, to describe the application of a slip 
post-fire, so after the firing. The last type of surface enhancement that I want to highlight for you are glazes. Glazes are applied to enhance the attractiveness of a vessel, uh, but they also render the surface basically impermeable to water. Glazes are applied uh, usually to dry vessels um, before they're fired, um, but they may also be applied uh, to what we call bisqueware, which means fired pottery that is yet to receive a glaze. Now, after glaze is applied to bisqueware, it will receive a second firing uh, so that the glaze can turn into glass. Now, I want to highlight here that glazes are different than slips. Compositionally, they contain very different materials that when fired, transform literally into glass. So glazes literally are glass. Potters may apply glazes by dipping, pouring, splashing, painting, or spraying. Now, as we get into glazes, I think you'll see that glaze formulas can be a bit complex. And they really do represent the potter's accumulation of knowledge and skill, quote, along with considerable experimentation. For millennia, such calculations and testing had to be done through practice with outcomes subject to the vagaries of firing conditions, end quote. Um, and that's according to Prudence Rice, excuse me, to Prudence Rice. So we get the sense of that a lot of this is trial and error. If we look cross-culturally, uh, we see that potters follow different glaze recipes with each ingredient playing a critical role in the final outcome. So for example, potters of Keita, Pakistan, have actually appropriated contemporary materials gathered from bazaars to create their glaze recipe. The recipe calls for crushed waster window glass, meaning really broken window glass fragments or broken glass bottles. These provide silica, which is what helps the glaze become glassy. Colorant is obtained from manganese extracted from old batteries and copper from scrap metal. Um, Keita Potters um, mix these materials together with a thick binder, uh, which, is, which consists of boiled flour and water. Now, cross-culturally, um, other materials um, are used as binders and to toughen glaze. Um, and some other examples would be honey, sugar, and tree gums. Now, I think you'll recall that we dealt a bit with the compositional and aesthetic differences between lead, alkaline, salt, lime feldspar, um, and ash glazes in episode four. So I'll, uh, I'll nudge you there for a brief refresh if you need it. That's sort of the nice thing about the podcast episodes. But here I'd like to highlight colorant material that potters add to glaze and the colors that these produce in both oxidizing and reducing firing conditions. Now, again, as a gentle reminder, we laid out the distinction 
between oxidized and reduced environments in episode four. So definitely return to that episode uh, for a quick refresh if you need to. Now the oxides of iron, copper, cobalt, manganese, tin, nickel, and chromium are those most commonly used as glaze colorants. These may be very finely ground, almost like a powder, and then added to the glaze recipe. A single colorant uh, may be capable of producing a, a many different hues, um, depending on, again, the firing atmosphere and how that colorant interacts with all of the other ingredients in the glaze recipe. So iron is capable of producing tan, yellow, brown, green, gray, blue, um, and even red. Copper uh, can produce a green and blue, uh, but also produce red and purple. Purple can also be achieved by manganese, uh, but manganese can also fire to black or brown. Nickel produces gray or brown. Chromium creates green, yellow, or turquoise. Cobalt, which is a personal favorite, I always feel drawn to it, produces this beautiful shade of blue. A tin, on the other hand, uh, creates an opaque white glaze. Now, as you're reading, I want to encourage you to check out Rice's Table 7.2, which I think is an excellent reference chart that organizes um, all of the color information for you. Uh, things can go awry during the glazing process if materials are improperly compounded, um, if they're applied carelessly, or if a vessel is fired at the wrong temp. So a network of cracks may develop on fired glaze, which is uh, something we called crazing. Shivering happens when the glaze pops off or separates from the body. Crawling is another type of flaw, uh, but actually can create an unintended uh, aesthetic. With crawling, uh, the glaze pools into these miniature islands, if you will, on the vessel's surface, um, exposing uh, patches of the body in between the islands of glaze. I think here it's definitely worth noting that glazes can be very dangerous uh, for a potter to handle. Uh, because the ingredients are toxic. So ash glazes are very caustic and should never be handled with bare hands. Uh, actually, I'll, I want to just say, really, you shouldn't be handling any glazes with bare hands. Um, lead glazes pose risk to the potter uh, who's applying the glaze, uh, but they actually may also endanger the user who may be consuming food from vessels glazed with lead. And when salt glaze uh, is fired, the kiln actually releases chlorine gas. So whoever uh, is monitoring the kiln really needs to be uh, masked up um, and proper ventilation has to be in place. Um, actually, so much chlorine gas has been released into the environment in Westerwald, Germany, where significant amount uh, of saltware uh, of salt clay stoneware has been produced over centuries. So Westerwald, Germany, is really um, a high output area, if you will, for salt clay stoneware. Um, 
However, uh, because of all of the chlorine uh, gas that's been produced in Westerwald, um, it's actually contributing to acid rain and deforestation. So we really need to be very mindful of these things. Nicholas David and colleagues wrote a paper uh, that we're reading this week that became a bit of a classic. Uh, and it's titled, Why Pots Are Decorated. Um, it was published in 1988, uh, so it's a little older, but it's classic, and I hope that you'll take a look at it. You'll see that their approach is very ethno-archaeological in nature, and it explores this really kind of interesting analogy between the human body and pottery vessel decoration among the Matha and Bulahe of northern Cameroon. So the authors grapple with the very important question of, you know, as the title of their paper implies, why pots might be decorated. Quote, we shall argue that pots are persons and that concepts of the body are closely related to and partly determinative of decorative expression. End quote. Um, the authors write. So for example, as you're reading, um, You'll notice how David and colleagues draw a parallel between red ochre beauty dots, which are applied to the human body, and a vessel's red wash decoration. Now, red ochre beauty dots are believed to confer magical protection to the human body. In a similar way, the red wash applied by a potter may also confer protective qualities to the vessel itself, but that might also perhaps extend to the user. Now, as this red wash dries, you have excess wash that rolls off and seeps, quote, into the ground and thus penetrates the realm of the ancestors, end quote, and may ward off fate. So as you're reading, see if you can identify what other uh, corollaries or connections the authors make between pots and people. There's also a comment section at the end of the article, uh, which really is another mine of information. As you'll see, uh, the paper kind of roused a bit of a stir. So here you'll be able to read archaeologists' critiques um, some of which are very critical, others are rather supportive. Um, and you'll also see how David and colleagues uh, responded to those critiques. We actually learned that the analogy between pots and people may be part of other potting traditions, aside from those found in Cameroon. So for example, Zuni potters of the American Southwest believe that, quote, pots are beings and not things. They're more like people, end quote. The potter's person analogy is also found among Hindu potters. And archaeologist Ian Hodder adds uh, that this analogy may also extend to Neolithic pottery that's been identified in southeastern Europe, as well as female figurines. So I think here, perhaps, is even another idea, more inspiration for a research paper that might explore whether the pot as person analogy uh, can be extended to other potting traditions. After surface treatment decoration 
and other finishings are applied, the vessel is now ready to be fired. We'll talk about fire and the firing process in next week's episode. As always, thank you for listening to the Pottery Series on Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. I hope you have a beautiful week and take good care. <music>